Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Uh, Let's start today with something a little bit different, uh, with history. It's not different, okay? You need to joke. We we must have lots of new people today. Great. Um, And today I want to start with American history. So as many of you all know, uh, from the beginning of our nation's founding, built into our Constitution are three branches of leadership. There's the legislative branch, there's the executive branch, and there's the judicial branch. The founders thought it was a good idea to separate powers. It's literally called the separation of powers and to build checks and balances therein into our government because power in the hands of one person or one group is far too corruptible. So let me give you a few examples of how I believe this separation of powers uh, has, uh, has worked and uh, sometimes worked well, sometimes not so much in the history of our country. Uh, First, uh, in the year 1857, uh, Mr. Dred Scott brought his case to the Supreme Court. Uh, Dred Scott was a black man, a black slave, and uh, he sued his mistress because she would not give him his right to purchase his freedom as well as his wife's freedom and his daughter's freedom. Case made it all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court actually ruled against Mr. Scott seven to two. Writing the majority opinion that, uh, that year, Judge Roger Taney stated the following, black people were of, and I quote, an inferior order, altogether unfit to associate with the white race. He goes on to explain that the Constitution did not have black people in mind when it outlined the rights of citizens. They, and I quote, had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. That's a Supreme Court justice. Now, uh, fast forward eight years after that, the Civil War is over uh, and has been fought, and Congress comes along and they superseded the ruling of the Supreme Court by introducing two new amendments to the Constitution. There's the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery, and the 14th Amendment, which guaranteed citizenship to anybody born in the United States or naturalized appropriately. So what I want you to notice here, I want you to notice that Congress in our separation of powers superseded the ruling of the Supreme Court. See how this works? Give you another example. Let's fast forward to 1952. America's at war. We're engaged in the Korean War. We're backing South Korea. China and the Soviet Union are backing North Korea. And it's about that time that the United States steel workers decided that they wanted to go on strike. You see, they had a lot of very lucrative defense contracts at that time. And they knew that if they were going to get the uh, the fair and higher pay that they wanted, then this would be a perfect time to threaten walking out. Now, in order to prevent the strike, President Harry Truman uh, did something very interesting. He actually seized control of the steelworker plants, seized control of them, took them under the authority of the federal government. Now, the steelworkers loved this, for the record, 
But the owners of the steel companies did not love this. So immediately they challenged this in court. And the Supreme Court in the uh, Youngstown Sheet and Tube Company versus Sawyer case actually ruled against the president. They slapped the president's hand and they said, hey, you can't just go around seizing up people's businesses whenever you want to, Mr. President. Even during a time of war. Now you see how this works? The Supreme Court, they slapped the hand of the president. So that's unconstitutional. I'll give you one more example. Uh, fast forward literally to September 2020, and uh, President Donald Trump uh, nominated his third Supreme Court justice for the court, Amy Coney Barrett. She came after Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. This sort of sw- uh, swung, the, uh, swung the Supreme Court to majority conservative. It was a 6-3 conservative count. Uh, many people think this is going to impact the court for decades to come. But once you notice, the president is the one who nominates the Supreme Court justices. President Obama did too. President Biden is doing one right now. I actually looked it up this week. It was George Washington and, and Roosevelt, I think, who, who did the most. They both did eight. Eight. Now, what's the point of these, this little history walk? Well, there is a point to, to, to this. Uh, these are all examples of how our government works the separation of powers, the checks and balances between the two. Every branch of the government has power over the other two. And those were just a few different ways of the plethora of ways that they can hold each other uh, accountable. Now I'll go ahead and tell you, the separation of powers does not make our government more efficiently, uh, more efficient. It actually slows it down. It also does not mean that every single time our government makes a decision, I like it. I don't always like what ends up happening. But what it does take into account, what it does add to the power calculation is this thing that Christians have been talking about for 2,000 years, and that is the reality of sin, the inevitability and universality of sin in every human life. You see, the founders believed that politicians are sinners too, believe it or not. And in my opinion, that power calculation has in many ways kept our country together during difficult times. And it makes me reflect this week, like, am I living in awareness of my own sin? And that, how, how that has the potential to disorder this church or disorder my family or disorder my community. Now, this is one of the beautiful things about Christianity, by the way. I believe the founders co-opted it from us. From the beginning, we have always said that, okay, every human being is created in the image of God. No doubt you have dignity, you have creativity, you have power and authority to shape the world around you. You have the capacity to love and reason. That's a cool thing. But you're also a sinner. All people are sinners. Jeremiah chapter 17, the prophet says, the human heart is the most the most, the most deceitful of all things, ouch, and desperately wicked, who really knows how bad it is? The apostle Paul, as we read earlier, Romans 5, 12 says, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now, despite the biblical example here and despite the massive amount of evidence around us every single day of the human propensity to sin, 
lots of us live our lives as if we're people who are essentially good. And the folks who are causing the problems in the world are those other people over there, those other people, like that other religion, that other race, that other political party, that other socioeconomic group, those people. Now, interestingly enough, Christianity does agree in a way with this assessment of the human condition. There is a damn, Christianity says, there is a damnable, wicked, blameworthy group of people. And you know who that group of people is? It's the group of people called people which includes me and you. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe's perhaps famous, most famous short story uh, was a short story called The Telltale Heart. Anybody have to read that in school? The Telltale Heart? Okay. Very disturbing read, by the way. Like not good to go home after church on a rainy day and open that one up. Not, that is not your pastor's suggestion today. But okay, so here's what makes it so disturbing. Um, in the book throughout, the narrator is trying to convince you, the reader, that he's not insane. While murdering an old man, dismembering his body in the bathtub, and then hiding him under the floorboards of his house. Again, very disturbing. Now, you know what, what eventually causes the narrator to go insane? Do you remember? It's the The thumping, that thump thump that is in his head, the thumping of the heart of what he believes to be the old man underneath the floorboards, still beating after he's torn him to pieces. Here's my point with this. You can hide the old man under the floorboards of your life if you want to, but I know the truth about you and God knows the truth about you and you know the truth about you. Sin is in your house too and it's thumping heartbeat haunts us all. Now, welcome to church today. <laughs> on this delightful Sunday, I worked on, I worked on the dramatic of that. Okay, anyways, um, that was an overstatement, y'all. That's what we call an overstatement in preaching. Anyways, uh, welcome to church. We're gonna start a delightful, a delightful sermon series off today on sin as we move into Easter and the grace of God and how it resolves it. We actually just began Lent on Wednesday. Lent's just an ancient uh, season in the you know, history of the church where in its healthiest expression, we remember our sin and also the grace of God. We reflect on how sin can cause death in our lives, but how we receive victory through Jesus. It's like a season of repentance as you move into the celebration of Easter. It'll be a powerful season in the liturgical calendar. Now, for you nerdy note takers in the room, here's how we're gonna go about this series on sin. Uh, I made a chart for you. Uh, basically, every single week, we're going to look at a different sphere of human life and the way sin impacts it. So if you see the second to the top row there, uh, the one that starts with human nature, that's where we're at today. Each week, a sphere of life, how sin impacts it. And then we're gonna look at Jesus, his work in light of the sin, how scripture lays that out, and the result of his work and some key passages therein. Now, a trigger warning for you as we move through this, trigger warning. As we study the sin in your life and it becomes more evident to you, and as we study the grace of God and how Jesus has freed us from that, there will be many of you who feel compelled, I believe by the Holy Spirit through this series, to 
give your life to God, to do something about it, to respond to Jesus. This is how the Spirit works. It just is what it is. It has nothing to do with the talent of the preacher or the Jesus smoke in the room, I promise you. It's just the Spirit of God. He can do it. So in that moment, if you're feeling like, I need to give my life to Jesus for the first time, or I need to give my life to Jesus for the first time in a long time and reconcile this, this sin problem within me, I wanna encourage you, whenever you feel that in the series, do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. It's a good thing. It's the right thing. Okay, so April 17th is Easter. That's when this series ends. On April 24th, the week after that, we are going to have a baptism weekend. And it's not gonna be an impromptu baptism weekend where we put like the, the hot tubs up here and like water sloshing everywhere. And it's gonna be an intentional baptism weekend because over the course of this series, every week we're going to be reminding you if this is a decision you need to make, make it today, make it today, make it today. And then we'll have a celebration of those decisions on April 24th. At any point in time in the series, you can text us. Okay, in fact, that text number right there will just hover on the screen. At any point you want to text the pastor, text that number, say, I just want to talk about baptism. A pastor will be there to talk with you. You can come to the fireplace after the service. We have pastors out there. If one sermon in particular strikes you, you're like, I need to talk to somebody, go right outside the door. There's a little fireplace. Go to the fireplace. We'll find you there. Or at any point in time throughout the week, you can go to necchurch.org backslash baptism and sign up for it there. I'm hopeful April 24th will be a day where we get to celebrate new life coming out of Easter. Now, that being said, if you're going to do a series on sin, you need to start with its origin story. So I want to read it to you now. Did you know that, by the way, I saw this in movie theater, they're coming out with an origin story for Buzz Lightyear? Like, origin stories are hot, you know, like, whatever, we'll sell tickets. Okay. So here's the origin story of sin. Where are we at? There we go. Okay. Genesis 3. The snake strolled into the garden. Verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Uh, one day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and she gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together, to cover themselves. Hook, line, and sinker. Now, um, interesting passage. Chances are, even if you're not a Christian, you've heard this passage before. And uh, whenever I read it, the first question I always get, yeah, see that hand in the back, go ahead, is this. Tyler, is it historical or is it like metaphorical, mythical, ancient literature? Now, if you have that question today, I want you to know, I don't blame you for having that question, um, but you are imposing upon a several thousand year old text, a 20th, uh, 20th, 21st century science question that the text never intended to answer. The original writers of this text did not have our 20th century, 21st century science questions in mind when they were writing this. I promise you. 
Now, when you read like what Jesus says or what Paul says, it does seem like they believe that there was like a historical man, woman, Adam and an, and an Eve pair. Uh, but on the flip side, when you read it, there's like two magical trees and a talking snake. Like, hello, how, like, how does that, it seems kind of metaphorical and mythical, like ancient, how ancient literature does. So how does this go together? I don't really know. I don't know. But no matter what side of the spectrum you fall on in historical, metaphorical, whatever, here's what we all agree on as Jesus followers. It's true. It's inspired by God. It's true. And it describes precisely for us the human condition and where sin came from. Now, now that we've moved this question out of the way that the text doesn't really ask and answer, let's answer the question that it does answer, sin. Okay? Now, to get at this, there's an interesting idiosyncrasy of the text. It's the tree. Everybody's always like, okay, you've answered the, the historical question. Um, wasn't a very good answer. You didn't really answer. That's okay. Um, what about the tree? What's up with the tree? Apparently, there, there are people in the unseen world who are wondering this. And, no, what's up with the tree? What's up with the tree? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. Uh, the text says, And the Lord God commanded the man, You may freely eat of every tree of the garden, so eat them all. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. You shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. Now, the command is very, very clear, right? Don't eat it. Don't that one. Which tree? This one right here. It's only one tree, like that one right there. It's a, it's a very clear command. But it's also confusing in its own right because there's no good reason as to why they shouldn't eat the tree. Like, what's, what reason is God provide? Like, the only reason God provides is because I said so. Honestly. If you look at the rest of the text, it seems like all indicators point to the fact that this tree looked really good to eat. Genesis 3 says uh, the tree was good for food. It was delight, uh, a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. Like, oh, in fact, like it, it's, it looks edible. It seems right to me. It looks very, de- I mean, I desire it. I want it. My feels are in that direction. And yet God says no. Oh, and by the way, it's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like, isn't that a good, don't we want the knowledge of good and evil? Don't we want that? Like if there was like a grand whopper mother foundational sin tree, wouldn't you think it'd be like the sin tree of hate or war or violence or lust or apathy or whatever? Knowledge of good and evil? How does that work? Now, let me try to explain this to you, okay? And this is just my own, my own two cents, but I think this, this will be helpful. Did you know that there are actually two trees that the garden is centered around in this story? There's two. There's the tree of life, Tree of life, which uh, apparently they can eat until they sin and get pushed out of the garden. And then there's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they can't eat. And these two trees, I believe, point to us, they symbolize for us what a right relationship with God looks like. The tree of life, which they could eat, symbolizes how we receive life down from God. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the one they can't eat, symbolizes how we leave good and evil up to God. You see how this works? We graciously receive life from God, but we resist, we resist usurping his role as the designer, the judge, and the moral arbiter of the universe. You know, the idea of the knowledge of good and evil in like Semitic culture is actually the idea, I would call it the arrogance. It's the arrogance of thinking that I have the right, me, 
and also the wisdom to figure out what's right and wrong for my life in the world. So you know what this tree could actually be called? It could be called the tree of self-sovereignty or the tree of self-rule or the tree of follow your heart and make your own truth or the tree of I'm going to be my own God. It's actually interesting. The interpretation here is supported by the snake's temptation. Genesis 3, 5. The snake says, you won't die. God knows your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. You see this? So interestingly enough, this actually is the mother of all sins. The idea that I have the wisdom and I have the right to determine what is right and wrong for me. This is what Adam and Eve chose. Well, and you know the fallout that comes next. Now, it's interesting. Um, I actually think that this is a good all-encompassing definition for sin. I was actually talking to youths about this a few months back. Uh, you know how I think scripture defines sin, at least here from the origin story? Sin is when we don't trust God's vision for what's best for us. It's anytime we don't trust God's vision, his vision for what's best for us. And man, how often does that play itself out? So the Wesleyans uh, actually had a really, really interesting way of, I think it's incredibly helpful, of figuring out God's will for our lives in any given moment. It's called the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Uh, basically, they said there are four things we should consider when we're trying to figure out God's will. We should consider uh, experience, like our personal experience. We should consider reason. Uh, we should consider church tradition. We got 2,000 years of it now. And uh, we should also consider God's word. Now, the problem today is because uh, so many people feel wounded by the church and because so many people have grown in distrust for the scripture. They tend to formulate these four together in a way that's totally backwards. So like what we'll do, do today is we start with our own personal experience, right? Or the personal experience of a friend or loved ones. And then we reason based on that about what's right and wrong. Well, that feels right to me or that feels wrong to me because of how they feel or how I feel or whatever, right? Then we take those deductions about right and wrong based on our experience and we critique church tradition with them and then we go to scripture and we co-opt scripture, ignoring huge swaths of it in order to support our own personal experience. Now, I think personal experience plays a key role in figuring out God's will. I'm not bashing that. The problem with that approach, though, is that its order of operations is totally backwards based on how the church has discerned God's will for 2,000 years. So here's how the church has pretty much always done it. We start with God's word then we read God's word through the 2,000 years of church tradition, the followers of Jesus that come before us, that have lived and died and have experienced life and suffering far more than most of us. Then after that, we use reason and we bring all of that to bear on our personal experience. You see how that shifts it? You see how it changes? And what it serves to do is it brings your own personal experience under the authority of a kingdom far bigger than you, far more transcendent than you, far wiser than you, far more multicultural than you, far older and far more mature than you could ever be on your own. All right, now back to the story, back to the story. Uh, you guys know how it goes. Adam and Eve succumb uh, to the temptation. And, uh, and the fallout from sin is devastating. It's de immediately they feel shame. 
They feel estrangement from God, alienation in their relationship with one another, disorientation with the created world around them. Basically, their relationship with self, God, others, and the world is broken, which is what we will talk about next week. Genesis 3 puts all of this under the umbrella of the curse of sin. The curse of sin. And you know what I think the actual curse of sin is? Like if we get to the heart of it, you know what the curse of sin is? It's sin itself. It's being given up or given over to follow your own desires and pursue sin. That's the curse of it. God is not a coercive God. So he says, look, if you want to go your own way, I'm not going to force you to love me. I'm not going to force you to honor me. And when we go our own way, well, oftentimes that's when our lives begin to fall apart. That's the real curse. It's just sin. The consequences of it. Consequences of trying to rule our own life. That's some statistics for you. These are from a Barna study. Uh, Did you know that 84% of Americans believe enjoying yourself is the highest goal of life? Uh, 86% believe that uh, to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you desire most. And thus a whopping 91% affirm the statement to find yourself, look within yourself. And God says, fine, America, fine. Go your own way. I love you, but go your own way. I'm not going to force you to honor me. Rule yourself. To which I want to say, but how's that going for us? How's that going for you? Really? How's that going for us, America? Really? I see, you know what I see? I, I see a country, a cultural moment where we have a thousand times higher of a quality of life than most generations ever to live before us and a lot of you know, countries and cultures on the planet Earth today, and yet we're still unsatisfied. We're still eaten up by the cancer of greed. Mental unhealth is at historic levels. In our country, ours, we're addicted to screens, self-medicating, incapable of having healthy relationships, even with our closest loved ones, incapable of committing really to anything over the long haul. Basically, everyone's just walking around this battlefield called life, wounded, because we thought we could taste the fruit and play God and design our own lives, only to fail. C.S. Lewis wrote this in The Abolition of Man. He says, telling us to obey instinct is like uh, telling us to obey people. People say different things. Like one way, one day you're this way, same way. So do instincts. Instincts are at war with each other. Or translation, he says, choosing yourself as the being that rules over your life and plays God is choosing a being to rule you that is flawed, inconsistent, and dying. Choosing yourself to, okay, be honest, man. You looked in the mirror this morning. Choosing yourself to rule over your life is like choosing a 38-year-old in middle management with a bourbon problem who still picks his nose when no one's looking to be God. (laughs) Throw that resume away. I'm your pastor. I love, look, every morning I look in the mirror and I'm like, thank God you are God and not, and not me. So this is part of the snake strategy, by the way. So like phase one, he, he plays into our ego. Because we have the ego to think we can be God, but not the power to. So he plays to our ego. 
He says, you'll be like God. God's holding out on you. You'll be like God. And we swing that direction. And then when our life begins to fall apart because we try to play God, phase two begins. And he swings our self-evaluation to the other direction. You ever notice this? Then all of a sudden he starts whispering to you, you are such a failure. Look at how you ruined your life. You blew it all up. You are alone and it's your fault. You are messed up and it's your fault. Look at your marriage. Look at your kids. Look at your so-called career. You are unlovable. And the crazy thing is we start to believe it. Now, this is what psychologists call negative self-talk. And the interesting thing about negative self-talk is that... uh, is that oftentimes it starts off as something that's untrue, but over time it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you continue to believe it. Like you think, I'm unlovable. And at first, that's not true. You're created in God's image. You're loved by hundreds of people sitting around you right now. I promise you that. But we believe that. And one year passes, 10 years passes, 20 years pass, and before you know it, we're angry and we're defensive and we're insular and we're unempathetic, sarcastic and snarky, always thinking about ourselves, trying to curb our self-image so everybody looks up to us rather than ever doing anything that's really self-sacrificial. Right? We become, over time, people who are incredibly difficult to love all because we, what we began to believe about ourselves. Until, of course, until we choose to be set free. And we place our identity back into the hands of the one who designed it, the one who stamped it with infinite and undeniable worth and the one who wants to raise it back from the dead. Which is what Paul gets at in Romans 5, the passage we read at the beginning. Paul offers us in this passage a way out of our dehumanized state into the way that we were truly created to be. 5, 12, and 18. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone for everyone's sin. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God. That's the Greek word we would translate as justification in English. Brings justification and new life for everyone. So uh, this is what this passage is saying. If you find yourself today feeling unlovable, if you find yourself today somehow feeling like you uh, are unworthy or you've broken your life beyond prepare and you've created for yourself playing God this little piece of, of, of hell on earth, the apostle Paul says in Adam, that's actually true. But in Christ, you can be justified. Do you know what justified means by the way? That's like one of those $10 Christian words. Justified is a law court term. That means you've been pronounced innocent. As we stand before the judge, whether we are innocent or not, the judge says, oh, well, looky there. Justice has been served. You are acquitted. You're innocent. This is the beauty of, of what Jesus does for us. See, okay, this is, justice is a part of the moral fabric of the universe. Anytime a wrong is done, it can't be ignored. It has to be absorbed by somebody. Somebody has to pay the debt for the wrongs done. Take, for example, an, an economic example. Um, uh, you're, pulling out of, you're pulling out of the parking lot today at the church, and, you know, some blubbering idiot from Oldham County <laughs> hits you and in, in, uh, in busts up your bumper, okay? And it's totally their fault. Now, in that moment, a wrong has been done, and justice must be served. Someone has to pay, and you can either make them pay, or you can forgive them and pay for it yourself, It's up to you. And with the moral sin debt of the universe, Jesus raises his hand 
And he says, I ain't talking about beat up bumpers here. I'm talking about your sin debt and his and hers and everyone. I'll pay it. I'll pay it. And I'm the only one who can pay it anyways. An eternal sin debt, well, paid by an eternal son of God. I'll pay the debt. And God says, signed, sealed, and delivered, you and I have been justified. We're innocent, even before the judgment day. What a beautiful promise. That's not all this passage promises. It promises justification, but it goes on and promises us something further than that. Triumph in this moment. Romans 5, 17, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many, but even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness, for all who receive it will live in triumph, triumph over sin, triumph over death through this one man, Jesus Christ. Now, I love this vision, y'all. When we step in Christ, we aren't like just walking around sad. Yes, I'm innocent, but my life still really stinks and I have no power over it. No, 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 no. We in a real way have triumph now. Like now, Paul goes on in Romans 16 to say that the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath whose feet? Your, underneath your feet. So in Adam, we succumb to the serpent, but in Christ, we crush his head. In Adam, we give authority over to sin and death, but in Christ, we take it back. And here's the interesting and beautiful thing about the kingdom of God that just flips it upside down for us, right? We think that to gain authority of our life, we have to take it, but really, we just have to give it. When we give authority to Jesus, that's when we get our lives back. You see, it's triumph. It's triumph. But Paul doesn't stop there either. He goes on to say that you receive justification and triumph, but it's all by grace, the abundant grace of, of Jesus. And Verse 20, he says, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. Wow. So just as sin ruled over all the world, brought him to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now that last phrase is key because Jesus' lordship is the vessel through which we receive all this. We have to make him Lord. Uh, Robert Mulholland wrote uh, in, in his book, Invitation to a Journey, um, about four layers of sin that we all go through as we mature in the Christian life. I thought it was pretty brilliant, actually. Uh, he says, level one are, are what he calls gross sins. And it's not like, ooh, gross. It's like obvious sins. You know, stealing, envy, Murder, stuff that everybody agrees on. Now, level two um, goes a bit deeper. He calls these conscious sins. These are the sins that we know are unbiblical, but they're socially acceptable, so we do them anyways. Sins like materialism or greed. There are certain uh, you know, addictions, uh, being snarky and sarcastic on social media. It's like a rite of passage for us millennials. Okay? Or anything to do with sex at all. It's just like socially acceptable, socially acceptable when we know it's unbiblical. These are the conscious sins, right? Now, the next layer is unconscious sins. Uh, these are, this gets at your motivations. You, if you're like me, sometimes you do really good things for terrible reasons. You do really selfless looking things for selfish reasons underneath. So we've got to bore down to the core of it. These are also sins of omission, things that we know we should do, but we don't do. The unconscious sins to the rest of the world. But then there's layer four. These are what uh, Mulholland calls trust structures. These are the things that we're actually depending on in life to get life from. 
Some writers will call these the idols that we depend on. Uh, These are the things we look to that we think can give us a happy life. The things that we look to for significance and security and joy and we trust in and place on the thrones of our heart in the place of God. You see how this works? It's really pretty brilliant. Now the idea here that he writes, which I might disagree with a little bit here, is that uh, as we mature through the Christian life, we bore down. We bore down to level one, then we try to cover level two, level three, and finally we get to level four. And that's, that's how the sanctification process works. But, but if you're like me and you spent most of your Christian life trying to do that, then what you realize eventually is that you're a failure at that. It like ends up being three steps forward, two steps back, two steps forward, three steps back. And you're like, I'm making no progress here. Like you get to a place where you've defined all the level twos and level three and you're working on the motivations and you've got like a rule of life and you got a little playbook and you're like reading and praying all the time. You got a podcast, like even when you're working out with Jesus stuff going on in your ears and you're like giving it over to God. But then you look at yourself in the mirror and you get at your heart and you realize the things I'm trusting in are still everything but Jesus. Like I'm still looking to human approval for significance in my life, or I'm still looking to the idol of success and achievement to somehow give me joy. Like that can cash in for me on my happiness. So look, this just hit me like a ton of bricks this week. I hope it hits you as well. If you spend your life boring down through level one and level two and level three, all you're gonna do is treat the symptoms. No, where we need to start is level four with the very thing we place our trust in the life and root all of those idols out and put Jesus there first. Then we're dealing with the root of the problem. The rest of it takes care of itself over time. So this is what I'm saying to you. In Adam, in Adam, we disordered our lives and our world. But in Jesus, he wants to reorder our lives under his good rule. You and I cannot play God. You can't even order your kitchen, okay? There's like dishes everywhere. You can't order your diet for a week. You think you can order your soul? So where does triumph come? It's not through the effort of getting through the one and the two and the three, no. It's through going straight to the heart of it at level four, putting Jesus where he belongs and getting first things in their proper place. So here's what I want to do as we transition into a time of communion. I'm going to ask you to actually grab your communion. Don't open it yet. I just want you to grab it and grip it for just a moment. And I want you to close your eyes as you hold these symbols, these emblems that represent Jesus' body and blood broken and given for us. And I just want you to receive this word. Receive this word about Jesus that is so relevant for you today. Just, Just close your eyes, hold the emblems, and receive this. In Adam, we are disobedient. But Jesus was obedient. In Adam, we yield to temptation. But Jesus resisted temptation. In Adam, we seek to become like God. But Jesus gave up his divine privilege and was born. In Adam, we disgrace the image of God, but Jesus radiated God's glory and represented his character perfectly. In Adam, we fail in stewarding the world, but Jesus won all authority over heaven and earth. In Adam, the world bristles with thorns, 
But Jesus wore a crown of thorns. In Adam, we are cursed, but Jesus became the curse. In Adam, we are judged, but Jesus bore the judgment. In Adam, we feel alienated from God, but Jesus was forsaken by God. In Adam, we are destined to die, but Jesus died for us and is risen from the dead. In Adam, we reap pain and suffering, but by Jesus' wounds, we are healed. In Adam, our sin unleashed death, but Jesus' death unleashed grace upon grace. Look, you have one choice to make today. Will you live in Adam or will you live in Christ? Pray it's the latter. I'm gonna put two questions on the screen that I'd ask you to consider just in silence for just a moment. And then we'll partake of communion together.